This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Health and Living with me, Lim Su. And when Australian rules footballer Heather Anderson died by suicide last year in 2022, her family donated her brain to the Australian Sports Brain Bank, hoping to better understand her death. Because of that, a team of Australian researchers recently said that they've made the world's first diagnosis of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, in a professional female athlete. Now, as research into CTE linked to contact sports continues to grow, this has led to calls for better concussion protocols to protect players in these various sports. So joining me to share more about CTE as well as the gender disparity in research is Associate Professor Dr Michael Buckland. He's a neuropathologist as well as the founder and director of the Australian Sports Brain Bank. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr Buckland. Oh, thanks for having me, Sue Now, Maybe I'll start by getting you to explain a bit about um, what CTE is. It's not something that many of us have heard of. Um, So what is chronic traumatic encephalopathy and how is it linked to contact sports? Oh, sure. Yes. So uh, CTE, or as you've said, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, it's a degenerative brain disease, not that dissimilar to Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. Um, And the difference uh, is that in most cases, we know what causes CTE, and that is exposure to repeated head impacts. Um, we have actually known about the disease for almost 100 years. Mm. Uh, people often cite uh, a 1928 paper by Harrison Martland describing punch-drunk syndrome in boxes. Uh, and for many, many years, uh, people all over the world um, thought that is punch-drunk syndrome or sometimes called dementia pugilistica or now chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, we always thought it was limited to boxes and was almost a historical oddity. Uh, It was certainly in the consciousness uh, of many countries back in the day. Uh, Marlon Brando actually won an Oscar in 1954, uh, Best Actor, Mm -hmm. for portraying a a punch-drunk boxer in a movie called On the Waterfront. So it was certainly well known back in the day, uh, but it was really only in 2005 when Bennett Omalu described um, a degenerative brain disease in an ex-professional American footballer that people started to think that maybe this disease was not such a historical oddity after all. Maybe it Uh, was uh, potentially seen in other contact sports players. And uh, subsequent to that, there's been many hundreds of cases described in the US in Mm -hmm. in American footballers. And certainly here in Australia, we've identified in um, Australian rules footballers, including Heather Anderson. Uh, At this stage, CTE is defined by how it looks like under the microscope. Mm -hmm. So it's the accumulation of an abnormal protein called tau. Um, And tau uh, accumulates in certain nerve cells around small blood vessels deep in the valleys of the cortex of the brain. And that's today how we we define CTE. Hmm. So does that mean that you can only diagnose CTE when you look at the brain under a microscope? That's correct. At this stage, there are no good uh, clinical diagnostic criteria 
for diagnosis during life. Uh, and so it's really reliant on looking at the brain at autopsy. Mm. All right. Um, Dr. Buckland, could you help me to understand how exactly does CTE happen? In, in the sense that I know it's linked to concussions, but how often would these concussions have to occur or how severe would they have to be for um, an athlete, for example, to go from just having one um, concussion, and an uneventful concussion, to having CTE? Oh, that's, I'm glad you raised that point. So uh, many people think CTE, the risk of CTE is related to the number of concussions you, you've had, but in fact, it's not. Mm. Um, it's uh, what, what relates closely to your risk of developing CTE is years of contact sports played. And it's thought that that is a proxy for exposure to repeated head trauma. Now, some of those may well be concussions, but the vast majority of these uh, head traumas or, or very mild traumatic brain injuries, you don't you don't even notice, uh, mm. and it's all just part of the rough and tumble of the game. Uh, so it's probably many many hundreds, if not thousands, of what we call subconcussive or non-concussive blows uh, that that determines your risk of, of developing CTE. Mm. So it's it's really across the, the course of an athlete's um, training and journey. And, and it's really enlightening to hear you say that it's, it's, it may not even be a full-blown concussion because I think that's that really highlights how big of a problem it is. Um, so then, you know, you've, you've sort of mentioned that we've seen in recent years um, hundreds of athletes being diagnosed with CTE, but... Is there a possibility of underdiagnosis or misdiagnosis considering that, you know, like you say, we don't actually have a test to, to diagnose CTE among athletes who are still uh, alive? Oh, yes, I think, I think you're right. Um, I expect Malaysia is, is not that dissimilar to Australia mm -hmm. in that not many people uh, that pass away have a full autopsy with a full brain examination. Mm -hmm. So we don't really have a good handle on how common this disease is. From what we can tell uh, from uh, lookbacks in uh, brain banks or in, say, our, our clinical um, archive, a clinical autopsy archive, mm -hmm. uh, so not people that had donated their brain, but people that had, had an autopsy for whatever reason, it's not very common. But when you look in the at-risk population, people that have played a fair bit of contact sports, we, we, we're not sure how common it is at the amateur level. Mm -hmm. In the professional level, you know, in American football, it's been estimated somewhere between 10 to 20% of professional American footballers will end up with this disease, wow. which is quite a significant percentage. Mm -hmm. And certainly, I don't know of any other workplace that would tolerate a fatal degenerative brain disease in, you know, 10 to 20% of their workers. Mm -hmm. uh, but in professional sports, it seems to be okay. Um, but it's a really big question. And, and certainly we and others uh, are trying to work out um, ways to diagnose it during life so we can get some uh, large-scale epidemiological studies going. Based on what we know now, then what are the possible symptoms that have been linked to CTE and when might these symptoms begin to appear? Oh, well, yeah, that, that is an, a way, another way which CTE is a bit different to Alzheimer's disease mm -hmm. 
in that uh, it can declare itself in young people, in people in their 20s or 30s, uh, or sometimes it will declare itself when people are in their 60s or 70s. Um, so there's quite a broad age range. Mm -hmm. And it seems in the in the younger people, when CTE declares itself, um, it often presents with mood disorders, can look like what we would call mental health problems. So uh, depression, anxiety, impulsivity, aggression, drug and alcohol abuse, uh, hopelessness, uh, thoughts or actions of suicide. Mm -hmm. If it declares itself in older people, people over 60, it often looks quite a lot like Alzheimer's disease and that they have problems with their memory and with thinking and planning. All right, we do have to go for a quick break now, but we'll continue our discussion about CTE and contact sports when we come back from the break. On the show with me today is Associate Professor Dr. Michael Buckland, neuropathologist as well as Director at the Australian Sports Brain Bank, joining me all the way from Sydney. We'll be right back, so keep it here on Health & Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su An. Joining me on the show today is Associate Professor Dr. Michael Buckland. He's a neuropathologist and director of the Australian Sports Brain Bank. Joining me over Zoom all the way from Sydney um, to share more about the work that he and his team at ASBB are doing in looking in researching chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, also known as CTE, especially in contact sports. Now, before the break, Dr. Buckland was sharing um, a bit of a 101 on what CTE is, how it presents in individuals, um, but also highlighting the fact that right now we still don't have a method of diagnosis for CTE when these athletes are still alive. And unfortunately, right now, CTE can only be diagnosed when um, brain tissue is looked at under a microscope. Now, Dr. Buckland, I want to talk about the, the research that your team has been doing. Um, so recently, it was reported that um, you guys diagnosed the first case of CTE in a professional female athlete in the brain of former Australian rules footballer Heather Anderson, who passed last year at only 28. Um, talk to me about why this was such a significant finding. Well, I think as you mentioned in your introduction as well, that um, uh, traditionally, uh, Females have been underrepresented in any of these uh, studies of ex-sports people. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's probably mostly to do with the fact that uh, traditionally females have not participated in large numbers um, in uh, contact sports. Mm -hmm. That that certainly changed here in Australia, and I know it's changed in the UK and, and the US. Uh, I don't know about Malaysia if it's changed or not, but... Mm. There are now professional codes in women's soccer or, or football uh, and professional Australia, women's Australian rules football, uh, rugby, professional women's rugby. So, I mean, that's that's terrific on many levels that women are getting the opportunity to um, to play at that high level and, and uh, play equally as men. But it also comes with the problem that now we're getting a lot of um, women being hit in the head a lot as mm. well. And so while it was uh, it was an important finding, it, I don't think it really came as much as a as much of a surprise to to myself or my collaborators either here in Australia or overseas mm -hmm. uh, because um, the professionalization of female contact sports, at least in Australia, started about 10 years ago. And we thought, all right, we'll probably 
start to see it. Mm. And in fact, it is notable that Heather Anderson, she played in the first ever uh, year of professional Australian rules football for mm. women. On the one hand, it's a good thing that you've managed to identify it. But on the other hand, it also points to the fact that there could be the same worrying trend among professional female athletes as well, right? Yes, that's right. And and we do know that um, females are, are more at risk of concussion. Mm-hmm. And if they do get a concussion, then they often uh, take longer to recover. So there do seem to be some gender-specific differences, at least in concussions, in those mild traumatic brain injuries. Uh, so whether or not that's going to translate into gender differences with uh, risk of CTE, we, we don't we don't yet know. But it could be that they are actually more at risk than men. Why are women more at risk of concussions? Oh, that's a good question. And I, I don't really know. And I don't think anyone really knows. Mm. People have proposed that it, it's the hormonal differences uh, and that maybe uh, the estrogen progesterone may lead them to be for, uh, alter the brain's response to injury. Mm-hmm. Others have proposed that uh, the difference in neck strength may um, make them more prone to concussion. And other people have, have proposed that because female contact sports participation is quite new, at least in large numbers, maybe the professionals are yet to have that really strong background in how to tackle and fall and so forth. But I, I don't know if any of those hypotheses are, are correct uh, or if it's a combination of one or all of them. Hmm. Yet another sort of gap in research, isn't it? Yes, it is. Now, um, I want to talk about the Australian Sports Brain Bank as well because, you know, I had a look at your website. CTE is central to the research that the ASBB is doing, um, of which you are the founder and director of as well. Tell me more about why you started the ASBB and, and more broadly, the kind of work and research that you and your team are doing. Oh, sure, yes. So uh, so I'm a, I'm a neuropathologist, so I spend uh, my all my working days diagnosing and classifying human neurological disease by examining human brain and spinal cord tissue. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I've been doing this for 15 or 16 years now. And I see a lot of brains and I see a lot of brain disease. I see a lot of Alzheimer's disease, a lot of um, motor neuron disease, Parkinson's disease. But I, I had been following the literature that had been coming out of the US and coming out of the UK, describing this pattern of pathology, uh, which was CTE. And, and I realised that I'd actually never, I'd never see that in my routine practice. And mm-hmm. then after a little while, I realised, well, one, I hadn't been looking in the right spots in the brain. And two, I actually hadn't been looking in the at-risk population, which was people that have played a lot of contact sports. And the so it was quite a naive uh, start to the project. I, I we set up the Sports Brain Bank to allow people to donate their brains that could be examined after death because I want just wanted to see if the disease was here or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's It's been disturbing just in that at-risk population how easy it is to find. Mm. What are the challenges though, uh, that, that, you, that you and your team have faced when it comes to studying CTE, I guess, in, in, throughout your work at the ASBB? While, while you say that you know, it's been surprising to find how easy it is to um, detect cases in brains that have been donated, but, but have there been any challenges along the way? 
Oh, they certainly have. Um, so probably the first challenge was uh, to get our initial brains. I, I would often have to call up the families of, of people that had recently passed away and asked if they would consider donating their loved one's brain. That was certainly a challenge for me mm. uh, as someone that typically works behind the scenes, having to uh, interact with grieving families like that. But I have to say, it, it, it's actually it's quite uplifting to to see just how many people, you know, in the depths of their grief, the, you know, very quickly respond to the fact that they can help others, and uh, it's a very a very positive insight into human nature. Um, and I often comment to my wife that it's a much better uh, insight into human nature than it is driving in Sydney traffic, which is uh, terrible. Um, so. That was certainly a challenge first up. Mm -hmm. um, there, it's not a message that professional sporting bodies welcome. And I, I thought naively when I started that if I pointed out the problem, that I'd get a, you know them saying thanks very much. We'll we'll fix it up now. Uh, but that's actually not the case. Um, at least in Australia, like Australian rules football has uh, you know multi-billion dollar broadcasting rights mm. and uh, multi-million dollar betting revenue uh, so it's a it's a large industry um, there, there's a sport profession not just Australian rules but rugby union rugby league American football soccer uh, they're all there's large amounts of money involved and, and big corporate corporations behind them so it, there's a lot of pushback from those sort of doctors associated with those organisations, uh, which came as a surprise. Mm. Uh, you know, in retrospect, I should have realised that was going to happen, but uh, that has been a challenge as well. Um, so, yes, there's ongoing challenges, but uh, certainly as a pathologist, I feel very lucky that I get to study a disease which sort of was not really known about in Australia before. So... It can be very, very gratifying as well. Mm. I mean, it's striking to me because we're talking about the, the health and well-being of the athletes here. And if athletes aren't well enough to play the sport, then then there's nothing to watch in, at the end of the day. Well, yes, but it seems that most cases of the disease, there's a delayed onset. Mm. So the athlete will retire and then it might be a period of years or even a period of decades before the disease starts to declare itself mm. so it doesn't it's different to say yes tearing your hamstring which obviously stops the athlete playing the next week mm -hmm. uh, but this disease comes on afterwards so uh, it's um it, it's a different sort of problem uh, yes yeah. mm. um from the aspect of technology and expertise as well do do, um, I mean, I guess from the perspective of ASBB, do you have those resources on hand to really pour as much as you want into researching CTE? Or are there sort of aspects that, that you can't um, look into yet because simply the technology isn't available? Well, uh, look, there is lots of things we'd like to do. Um, like a lot of things in life, it's all about having the money to do it. Um, first off, the first few years we ran the Sports Brain Bank um, we had uh, very little funding, uh, but we were very lucky to have the support of, of the, the hospital that I work in, RPA Hospital. Uh, and because we already look at so many brains as part of 
you know, my routine work, mm-hmm. uh, we didn't have to invest much money just to look at a few more. Um, uh, so we were very fortunate in that way. But the money only recently last year, we got uh, a, a large donation of, of $500,000, which has really kickstarted our molecular research. Mm. And I think that you know, we're very, by examining the brain tissue and finding molecules in there that are unique to CTE mm-hmm. and are not present in the brains of normal people or in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. If we can identify those molecules, we can then start, see if we can develop, say, a blood test to see if can we find those molecules in the blood and develop a blood test or the cerebrospinal fluid. Mm. Uh, So that's that's where we're focusing our our attention on at the moment. Um, We have several other projects sort of stacked up, ready to go and Hopefully, if we do get some more money in the future, we'll be able to to jump on those as well. Oh, that's that's really promising to hear. I mean, I can only imagine, you know, being able to diagnose um, CTE when someone is still uh, alive and well. That would be such a game changer. Oh, it absolutely would. Because then once you're able to diagnose it and monitor it, you can then start trialling treatments mm. uh, because you, you can detect the people that have the early disease and then you can see if any treatment works. Um, yeah, so it's fundamental to any treatment. Hmm. Um, at the heart of this research as well, it's also about making contact sports safer for athletes, right? And and I've seen um, calls for global sporting bodies to introduce protocols that would protect athletes from these sort of mild traumatic brain injuries. Um, calls from athletes, from um, healthcare, from the from the medical field. Um, from your perspective, you know, what do you think these safety protocols could look like? What sort of practices or moves do you think need to end, or at least can be made safer for athletes? Oh, yes, that's a good question. Um, so uh, many of the sporting codes now have uh, invested a lot in developing concussion protocols mm-hmm. for the identification of concussion and uh, removal from play and, and management of concussion. Um, but that's not really changing the, the risk of CTE. Uh, so I think every sporting code needs to have a CTE minimization protocol that sits alongside their concussion protocols. And that CTE minimization protocol should be based on two fundamental principles. Mm -hmm. The first one is reducing an athlete's cumulative lifetime exposure to head impacts. And the other one, which is related, is delaying the age of first exposure to uh, these repeated head impacts. So uh, personally, I think that uh, there should be no child playing contact sports before high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also think that managing your cumulative lifetime exposure might be that you don't do full contact training three days a week and then go and play your game on the weekend. If you could uh, reduce your contact training, you could potentially halve your lifetime exposure without making any rule changes to the game at all. Uh, So there's probably lots of clever ways you can reduce that cumulative exposure. And I often think about it uh, a bit like uh, the Australian sun in summer, and Mm -hmm. I'm sure like the Malaysian sun in summer. Uh, We all now know that 
too much sun exposure over your life, particularly when you're young, mm-hmm. leaves you uh, sets you up for later in life skin disease and skin cancer. Mm-hmm. So we all we all know that now, and we all regulate our exposure to the sun, and we now need to start getting that mindset to into contact sports. We have to regulate our exposure. Are you seeing that awareness grow among athletes um, and and their 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 training teams in Australia? Well, yes, probably the last twelve to eighteen months, mm-hmm. uh, there's been a. I think the awareness has really taken off here in Australia. So it's taken now probably probably four years uh, before it start. We started to get a lot of traction, mm-hmm. uh, but now this issue is discussed quite often on on sports shows and currently in in the national rugby league competition here in australia the players union is asking for more control over player welfare and Mm. having some say in how many games they have to play in their contracts Uh, and one of the reasons they're brought up is the fact that uh, they're aware of cte and the risks of cte so it's starting to make an impact yeah uh, very promising, very inspiring to hear that. And hopefully, you know, we will be able to catch up with you again um, over more um, breakthroughs that you make um, in your work. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Buckland. Oh, that'd be terrific. Thanks very much, Sue Anne. I hope we can speak again. I've been speaking to Associate Professor Dr. Michael Buckland, neuropathologist and director of the Australian Sports Brain Bank about chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, especially among contact sports athletes. I'm Lim Suan and this has been Health and Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, Download the VFM app.